Well, thank you, Dave, and thank you, Church, for such a lovely, warm welcome. Uh, if you haven't heard of Rabbi Zacharias or the Zacharias Trust, um, the aim of our ministry really is to come alongside and help the thinker to believe and the believer to think. And with that in mind, if you have your Bibles with you, can you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we're going to kick off from verse 1 through to verse 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even dare to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect, no, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Is this what we believe? I heard a story, I read a story in fact the other day that really stuck in my mind and grabbed hold of my heart. I wanna share it with you this morning. It was about an old man named Paul, an American who could recall being the first man on his street to have this new invention in his house called a telephone a home telephone. I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of those old telephones. And one day as a seven-year-old boy, Paul discovered that somebody actually lived inside this telephone called Information Please. And this person, Information Please, knew everything. Paul discovered this the day that he hit his finger with a hammer. His mother was next door talking to a neighbor. There was no one at home to cry to, so he picked up and said, Information Please, and a voice answered saying, Information, I hurt my finger, Paul wailed into the phone. Is your mother home, came the question. Nobody's home but me, Paul blubbered. Are you bleeding, the voice asked. No, he replied, I hit my finger with a hammer and I gotta tell you, it really hurts. Can you open your ice box, she said. He said he could, then chip off a little piece of ice and put it on your finger, said the voice. It worked. After that, Paul called information, please, for everything. She was so clever, she knew everything. She could even, even help him with his homework, including maths. Now then there was the time that the pet canary, Petey, died. 
And Paul called her and and told her the sad story. She listened and said the usual things that adults say to console young children, but Paul was inconsolable, and she sensed that. He asked her, why is it that birds should sing so beautifully and bring joy to all families, only to end up as a heap of feathers on the bottom of a cage? Sensing his really deep concern, she said quietly, Paul, always remember there are other worlds to sing in. Somehow he felt better. Now when Paul was nine years old, his family moved to another city. They didn't have telephones and by the time they did, Paul was a teenager. But even in his teens, the memory of those conversations with information pleas as a child never left him. He appreciated how patient and kind and understanding she must have been to have spent time on this little boy. Now a few years later, Paul went to college And on his way to college, his plane put down in Seattle. He had about half an hour between planes, so he spent 15 minutes on the phone with his sister, who lived there now. Then without thinking what he was doing, Paul dialed his hometown operator and said, information please. And miraculously, he heard the same voice, clear voice he knew so well, information. He hadn't planned on this, but he heard himself saying, could you please tell me how to spell fix? Now there was a long pause, then came the soft-spoken answer, I guess your finger must have healed by now. (laughs) Paul laughed, so it's really still you, I can't believe it. I wonder if you have any idea how much you meant to me during that time. I wonder, she said, if you know how much your calls meant to me. I never had any children, and I used to look forward to your calls. Paul told her how often he had thought of her over the years and asked if he could call her again when he came back to visit his sister. Please do, she said, just ask for Sally. Now three months later, Paul was back in Seattle. A different voice answered, information please. He asked for Sally. Are you a friend, she asked. Yes, a very old friend, Paul answered. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, she said, but Sally's been working part-time for the last few years because she was sick. She died five weeks ago. Before he could hang up, she said, wait a minute, is this Paul? Yes, Paul replied. Well, Sally left a message for you. She wrote it down in case you called. Let me read it to you. The note said, tell him I still say there are other worlds to sing in. He'll know what I mean. That's a beautiful story. I think you can see why it grabbed my heart. Always remember there are other worlds to sing in. In other words, there is hope. Death is not the end. This life is not all there is. Do we really believe that? When young Paul confronts the bitter reality of death in the form of a lifeless pet canary, it shocks him. It confuses him. It doesn't make sense. It just feels so wrong in the deepest part of his heart. What's the point? of all the life and color and singing and wonder of a canary, he asks, if only they end up as a heap of feathers on the bottom of a cage. In the language of a child, Paul is really asking a profound question, a question that confronts every single one of us here this morning. The great Russian author Leo Tolstoy put the question like this, he said, What meaning has this life that the inevitability of death does not destroy? What meaning has my life that the inevitability of death does not 
destroy. I remember asking myself this question as a 14-year-old. Of course, not in the same articulate words that Leo Tolstoy used. Being an Australian, articulate is something I've never been accused of, but it was the same substance. Now, I didn't grow up in a church. We never talked about life and death and God and big questions of life. And at the age of 14, I was in the fortunate position that I had not yet experienced tragic loss and bereavement of a dear loved one. Yet, I remember very clearly one day just being in the playground at school and wondering to myself, is it true that we just live 80 or 90 years and then we die and then we're dust. And everything we've loved, everything we've achieved, everything that we are inevitably, inevitably and eventually dissipates into nothingness. I thought to myself, if that's true, that's sad. It's a sad story. And it's also a meaningless one. I was playing a lot of video games at the time. I remember thinking, that's as meaningless as a video game where no matter how well you play the game, the end result is always the same every time. You lose. And of course, this understanding of life is the common understanding of the atheist perspective of life, that this life really is all the life that there is. And no matter how well you and I play the game of life, it doesn't matter. The only winner in the end is death. That's it. Always, inevitably, 100% of the time. Unless Sally was right. Unless there are other worlds to sing in. Unless this life really and truly is not all the life that there is. Now most people in Britain would, if asked, say they don't know if there's life after death, but they sure hope that there might be. But there's no certainty there at all. It's only wishful thinking. Now, wishful thinking is a kind of hope. Like when we say, I hope my lottery ticket is going to win. That's wishful thinking. There's no good reason statistically to think that it will win, but it's still nice to think that it might. But Christian hope in life after death is not wishful thinking. It's almost the opposite of wishful thinking. When the Bible talks about hope, it means a certain hope is something you can count on. This is a confident expectation. The Bible says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the grace that might be brought to you, or probably, or possibly, or very statistically highly, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christian hope in life after death is not like hope in a lottery ticket. If we're gonna use an analogy, it's more like hope in a written check with your name on it signed by Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. You can be certain this check is gonna pay. Similarly, eternal life with God is a promise written in God's word to the Christian, issued by the Father, prepaid by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and signed, sealed and delivered by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This is a promise that you and I can bank on. The scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Just think about it. No eye has seen. We have not yet seen. But does unseen mean the same thing as uncertain? 
No, not linguistically or logically and certainly not biblically. Unseen does not mean uncertain. As the scripture says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Heaven is unseen, my friends, but it is not uncertain. Our confident hope is not just in this life, it's in this life and the life that is to come, eternal life with God. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes this point very clear when he says, if we only have hope for this life in Christ, we're not just missing out, we are to be pitied among all people. Why is Paul so confident in God's promise of life after death? On what is his confidence based? The answer is found a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul writes, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In other words, our Christian faith rests on a risen Christ. Why are you looking for him here? He's alive, he's not in the grave. Jesus is alive. What was it Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in the passage we just read out? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised to life on the third day according to the scriptures. These are statements of fact. This is the incredible claim that we make as Christians that Jesus Christ, the person Jesus Christ, literally, actually, factually, historically died on Friday, and then on Sunday, he literally, actually, factually, historically, rose from the dead. That's a complete and utter game changer. It changes everything. Now, of course, as we well know, belief in the resurrection if you talk to people about your faith, you will quickly discover belief in the resurrection can be one of those things that, that this world and, and people in this world and atheist writers in particular will point to as, as an example of the sort of irrational things that Christians are willing to believe. People coming back from the dead is the type of things that happens in myths and fairy tales, they might say, but not in the real world. They say we can see why we might want to believe in a delusion like this if it helps us cope with the harsh realities of life and death. Fair enough, do what you want, but it's a fairy tale fantasy nonetheless. But the thing is, if you actually take the time to pick up a Bible and read about the life of Jesus Christ, you quickly discover, as I did on my search, that the Bible doesn't read anything like a fairy tale. You read about the life of Jesus Christ and you read about Herod, and Judea, and Caesar Augustus, and the Roman Empire. These are real people, real places, real events, real history. I don't know any fairy tale that reads like that. Now, I've had the pleasure of speaking on a number of BBC um, radio programs from my perspective as a, as a lawyer on the... I didn't want to tell you at the start of the talk that I'm a lawyer because I wanted you to like me. I'm hoping you like me now and that overcomes that. Now, apologies to all the lawyers in the room. I'm sure you're all very good people. Now, uh, I was speaking from my perspective, from my background, on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you that a lot of people, intelligent people, journalists included, are often surprised to discover that this person, Jesus Christ, really actually even existed in history. But of course he did, and no serious scholar doubts it. In 2013, Time Magazine published an article in which they gathered an assembled array of experts in order to answer the question of all the people who've ever walked the face of our planet, 
Who has had the biggest influence on human history? And the answer of these experts was, this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus has had the biggest historical footprint of anyone. Now that fact, that extraordinary fact, requires explanation because if you think about it Jesus wasn't wealthy he wasn't powerful he never traveled very far from home and he was killed when he was only 33 years of age in the most humiliating fashion possible hung naked on a cross to die in full public spectacle in what was and still is today a shame and honor culture what shame Humiliation, it should have been the end of any movement that we, he was trying to bring about. And yet, we find ourselves here 2,000 odd years later celebrating Jesus Christ. It should have been the end of any movement. What happened after he died? Obviously, something extraordinary must have happened. And of course, something extraordinary did happen. The resurrection and this is where a lot of people find it hard to keep tracking with us as Christians because they say, okay, fair enough. I'm willing to concede that Jesus really existed. Historians don't doubt it. Who am I to question the experts? Fair enough. But why do you need to get all weird and supernatural about it all and claim that he rose from the dead miraculously and that he's the son of God? Can't we all just be sensible and moderate about this? I mean, we are British after all. <laughs> Can't we just agree that he was a really good moral teacher and leave it at that? But of course we can't do that and the reason we can't do that is because Jesus himself won't let us because he claimed by his words and by his actions to be God and if a person proclaims publicly that they are God then they're either mad or they're bad or they're telling the truth and they're God. They're either a liar or a lunatic or they really are the Lord as C.S. Lewis famously pointed out in his classic book, Mere Christianity. Now, which of the three options it is very much depends on this. Did Jesus rise from the dead as he said he would? Because if he rose from the dead as he said he would, it makes sense to believe what he had to say about himself. But if he didn't rise, it makes no sense to believe anything that he had to say. The Apostle Paul admits as much when he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching's useless, and so is your faith. So are Christians deluded to believe that Jesus rose from the dead as many atheists say that we are? Well, the two main objections that you'll hear from people are, one, how can we believe he rose from the dead when there's no evidence for this because we're talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago? And secondly, isn't belief in the resurrection completely contrary to everything we know from science about the laws of nature? Well, these are good questions, and good questions deserve good answers if we want to love the people that we're talking to. So we, let's do our best to try to answer them. Consider the first argument that miracles are just impossible because the laws of nature explain everything. Now some people won't even look at the evidence for the resurrection unless you deal with this objection. Now I think this can be a pretty intimidating argument on the face of it until you realize that it's not really an argument at all. That's because saying that the laws of nature explain everything is just another way of saying miracles never happen. Because a miracle is by definition an event that can't be explained by uniform natural laws. So if someone says miracles never happen because the laws of nature explain everything, they're saying nothing more than miracles never happen because miracles never happen. Or miracles are impossible because miracles are impossible. 
Can you see, you can't even call that a bad argument because it doesn't even rise to the level of an argument. It's like arguing that Sydney is the capital of Australia because Sydney is the capital of Australia. That's not an argument, and for those of you who are cluey, that's not even true. Canberra is the capital <laughs> of Australia. Now, you all knew that. Now, to believe that a miracle has occurred is to stop, to think that, to believe that a miracle has occurred is to stop believing in science or in the existence of a universe that operates in accordance with natural uh, laws such as gravity, just think about it, that's not true. You can believe in miracles and in science. Who, who discovered gravity? Isaac Newton. He also discovered the apple. Now Isaac Newton was a Christian as was Kepler and Galileo and Pascal and most of the pioneers of modern science. It's just that these great scientists and Christians believe that this universe that we live in, is not, uh, which is a system of uniform natural causes, is not a closed system, but an open system. One that's open to intervention by God, the creator of the system. He can enter into the machine and do a bit of tinkering when he wants to. And they believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, this was something unique and something special, supernatural. God the creator did something not in violation of any of the laws that he created, but something in addition to and beyond those laws. There's no contradiction. The scholar Wolfhart Pannenberg points it well and it says, if somebody considers it to be a general rule, suffering no exception that the dead remain dead, then of course one cannot accept the Christian assertion that Jesus was raised but then this is not a historical judgment, but an ideological belief. If one were to try to make an historical judgment, rather than to merely just assert an ideological belief of atheism or scientific naturalism, then one would have to consider the historical evidence, which we're gonna do right now. What is the historical evidence for the resurrection? Is there any? Absolutely, there's lots. Virtually every serious historian, whether they are Christian, atheist, agnostic, or otherwise, acknowledges three minimal facts about Jesus Christ. One, that he, was, he died on a cross. Two, that his disciples genuinely believed that he rose from the dead and appeared to them on a number of occasions. And three, that the early church just exploded in numbers soon after Jesus' death. How do we know these facts? Thanks to the work of some scholars by the name of Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona, who between them have collated and analyzed over 3,500 scholarly works and articles, basically everything that's been written on the resurrection by historians and the experts since 1975, to answer this question, what do the experts believe? And this is what is virtually unanimously agreed. Jesus died, his disciples genuinely believe he appeared to them after his death and spoke to them, and the early church exploded in numbers. So investigating the case for the resurrection means making an assessment of which of the available explanations makes most sense in light of the agreed facts of history, these agreed facts. Now, interestingly, this is exactly what judges do in a court of law. They look at the various explanations on offer from the different sides and then see which explanation best fits the evidence, has the most explanatory power. It's a reasoning process called abduction. You don't have to know that, but you might want to know that it's the same process of reasoning that Sherlock Holmes uses in solving all his cases. If you're a fan of Sherlock Holmes, or indeed Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, if the resurrection happened, of course it fits these facts like a glove. It makes sense of why after dying, the disciples would believe that Jesus appeared to them and spoke to them, because he really did. 
because he really rose from the dead. But if there is a plausible naturalistic explanation for these agreed facts of history, then the resurrection claim is unlikely to be true, at least from an evidential perspective. That doesn't affect what we can know just knowing God experientially, heart to heart, but just from an evidential perspective. So then, what, what, is the, um, what are the alternative hypotheses? Well, very quickly, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead as Christians, as the disciples said that he did, it means that they were either deceivers, deceived, or deluded. Could the disciples have deceived everyone? Well, no, because as I said, historians unanimously agree that the disciples sincerely believed that they saw a risen Jesus. Why? Well, besides the fact that it would have been logistically difficult to slip past the Romans, move the boulder, bring the body out, and then slip past the Roman guards again and try to hoax a resurrection. I don't know if you've ever tried it. It's really tricky. Besides that, the reason is historians say nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. And these guys were willing to go to the death for this belief. So hardcore historians say, no, these guys genuinely believed he rose from the dead. So if they're not deceiving people, option two, were they deceived? Well, you've got to ask who would want to deceive them. The Romans, no, they wouldn't want to create a legend that would destabilize their authority in an otherwise unstable Palestinian region. What about the Jewish leaders? Well, they're the one who wanted Jesus dead because he was, uh, he was, he, he was troubling their religious authority. Well, maybe Jesus himself deceived everyone, didn't really die, just fainted or swooned on the cross is the theory, the swoon theory, uh, just fainted on the cross, uh, revived himself in the tomb, rolled the massive stone away, slipped past the Roman guards, went to the disciples and said, hey guys, I just rose from the dead, when in fact he'd only fainted. Now, this theory, crazy as it is, reminds me of a story of a young boy who wrote into a Q&A forum in a magazine in which he said, dear sirs, regarding Easter, my teacher says that Jesus just swooned on the cross. What do you think? Sincerely, Tommy. The reply from the editor of the magazine was, dear Tommy, I suggest that you take your teacher and beat him hard. 39 times with a cat of nine tails whip and then hang, uh, nail him to a cross and leave him in the sun there for six hours and then put a spear through his side, make sure it goes up into his lungs and then put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours and see what happens. Sincerely, Charles. This theory has been thoroughly discredited as you can imagine with all the weight of historical knowledge or modern medical knowledge which we could go into more detail if we had the time. The third theory is that the not deceived deceivers, maybe they were just deluded. And this is possible. People, the leading theory that, that the disciples hallucinated Jesus' death, because people hallucinate all sorts of weird things all the time. You could hallucinate that someone rose from the dead, but the problem with this theory is that hallucinations are not a group phenomenon. So hundreds of people don't all hallucinate the same thing at the same time, and afterwards everyone remembers exactly what the hallucination said and did, and the breadcrumbs and the fish bones are there as well. That makes absolutely no sense at all. So when you go through all the alternatives, you do just see that the only explanation which does actually make sense, the only explanation on the table which makes sense of the agreed facts of history is that Jesus did really and truly rise from the dead as he said he would. That's why Oxford professor of philosophy Richard Swinburne is able to write in a book published by Oxford University Press that you can make a case based on the evidence that it's highly, highly probable that Jesus rose from the dead. There's a huge amount of historical evidence that people take seriously at the highest levels of academia. Uh, N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, said he's examined all the alternative explanations, ancient and modern, for the rise of the early church and has to say that far and away the best explanation is that Jesus Christ really and truly did rise from the dead. You even get skeptical scholars, atheists like Geza Vermez, who admit 
Just say, look, after 2,000 years of scholarly inquiry, there are no satisfactory explanations that account for the agreed facts of history. The disciples' genuine claims to have experienced a risen Jesus, the complete transformation of their lives and monotheistic worldviews, and the explosion of the early church. I hope you can see that Christian hope rests on a solid foundation if you're willing to look at the evidence. It's not a false hope, as many atheists might argue. On the contrary, atheism, as I see it, is a false despair. You don't need to despair. You're not being more intelligent by being an atheist. That's just not true. The dominant narrative of atheism that each of us is just nothing but a cosmic accident in a universe of blind and indifferent forces, a random product of time plus matter plus chance, here for a few decades and then gone forever. That's the story. No wonder British artist Damien Hirst writes, why do I feel so important when apparently I'm not? Nothing is important and everything is important. I do not know why I am here, but I'm glad that I am. I'd rather be here than not. I want to die. I, I'm going to die, but I want to live forever. I can't escape that fact, death, and I can't let go of that desire for eternal life. Look, we rarely speak of it in polite society, but death is just this great inevitable that hangs over all our lives like a specter, threatening to rob the present of any meaning that could possibly transcend the finitude of our lives, and it fills us with fear the closer and closer we get to it. But the significance and the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is death does not have to have the final say over your life or over my life, and that's true. Jesus did not take, he not only took all our moral brokenness and our guilt and our shame and our selfishness on his body and then buried it in the grave. He rose again from that grave. Having dealt with everything that stood in the way of us having a relationship with a holy God, he then defeated death, not just metaphorically, but literally in order that nothing needs stand in the way of any one of us enjoying a relationship with God for all eternity. Now this is a good story, but it's not just a good story, it's a true story. And the best stories are both good and true. It's not just wishful thinking, pie in the sky when you die sort of stuff. It's rooted in the historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and completely open to investigation for open-minded, sincere seekers of truth who are willing to investigate things for themselves. I think the pursuit of truth is ultimately the pursuit of God because he is the truth. Now, um, Dave uh, alluded to it earlier. This week as a ministry, we are mourning the tragic death of a beautiful woman and uh, mother of three children named Brenda, who is the wife of Raymond Bekenya, one of our team of evangelists uh, in Uganda. Brenda was diagnosed with liver cancer just over a week ago and just died a couple of days ago. Amy or Ewing, who was meant to be speaking here this morning, is attending her funeral. Now, is mummy coming home? Is a question that um, children would naturally ask. Because of her faith and his faith in Jesus Christ, Raymond is able to truthfully say, no, She's not coming home. She is home with Jesus. And one day we will be home with Jesus too and we will see mummy again. Now, <laughs> death is no less painful for the Christian than for anyone else. But it's not final. It's not forever. In the midst of pain and suffering and tears, there's still hope. 
Just as the cross reminds us that this world is certainly not the way that it should be, so too the resurrection reminds us that this world will one day be as it's meant to be. One day, no more tears. One day, the sting of suffering will be removed. One day, life will swallow up death. One day, joy will swallow up sadness. One day, all that is wrong will be put right and all that is sad will be made untrue. But in the meantime, Jesus calls you and I to trust him. Sometimes even in the midst of loss and suffering and bereavement so great that we cannot help but to cry out to God in tears and frustration. But even then, we can trust him, not only because, let's face it, where else have we to go? but also because the one who promises to be with us through that pain is worthy of our trust and he's got the scars to prove it. Can I ask you, have you entrusted, have you fully wholeheartedly given your life to Jesus Christ? To the one who took your place and my place on the cross, who carried all our evil and sin and selfishness and shame and buried it in the grave so that nothing could separate us from a God who loves us and is holy. Have you entrusted your life to the one who defeated death so it need not have the final say over your life? If not, why not? Seriously, what is stopping you? It's because, is it because you're afraid of what it might cost you? Often it is. Can I, can I encourage you to think about what it might cost you not to give your life wholeheartedly to Jesus, what you're actually giving up here, eternal life in relationship with God, the source of all goodness who loves you dearly and has loved you from the first day of his life and who gave his life for you. As well as being something that can be investigated, Christianity is something that can be experienced because it's all about relationship with God. He really, really wants you. The question is, do you want him? If you do, if you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time, then I'm going to close with a prayer that anyone could pray who wanted to start afresh this relationship with God and to receive the forgiveness and the new life that he really does offer in Jesus Christ. So if you'll bow your heads with me, I'll pray this prayer. It's a prayer of just giving your heart to Jesus. And if the prayer resonates with where you are at, then feel free to echo this prayer in your heart as I pray. God, thank you for your invitation to an adventure of faith and love in relationship with you. I'm sorry for all the selfishness and the wrong things that I've done for going my own way without reference to you. Thank you so much, Jesus, for your death on the cross for me and your resurrection to bring me forgiveness and new life. I need that forgiveness. I need your life. I open my heart to you today. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to lead this life of love and faith that you made me for. In Jesus' name, 